Welcome to Exploration Radio. My name is Ahmad. Exploration Radio is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of Geoscientists. We are also the official media partner of the 2022 PDSE conference. On this episode, our guest is none other than Rick Rule. He needs no introduction. If you don't know who Rick is, Google him. I'm pretty sure Google was invented just so people could find out about all the stuff that Rick has done. Oh, and if you want to know more about what amalgamated aardvarks are, you won't find that through Google. You just have to listen to this episode. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome to Expression Radio, Rick. Thank you for having me on, Ahmed. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to visit with yourself and your audience. What are you doing with yourself these days? You are, quote unquote, officially retired. Are you one of the people that is busier in retirement than they were when they were officially working? Yeah, I suspect I'd flunk formal retirement. Uh, I'm still working quite hard. I've been very lucky uh, in life, Ahmed. That doesn't mean I haven't worked hard, but I've been very lucky. And I'm in the rather unique position of not having to do anything that I don't want to do, but I like to work. The consequence of that is that I've retired from any regulated position. I'm no longer an officer of Sprott, as an example. I've given up my securities licenses. So anything that might cause me to deal with a government agency, with the exception of, of course, uh, IRS, the Department of National Revenue, uh, is gone. You can't escape them. So that, that's, that's a problem. But not dealing uh, in regulated activities, having things like commercial freedom of speech. I'll be able to say things in this interview that I wouldn't have been able to say a year ago as a regulated person. I've also given up managerial and administrative responsibilities. You know, I used to have a couple hundred people that, in effect, reported to me. Now I have one employee and I report to her. You met her, Pally, uh, an extremely competent human being. And rather than having her report to me, although I, I pay her, rather than having her report to me, I report to her. So I've decided uh, at age 69 that I'm not going to do anything I don't want to do. And I'm going to do a lot of what I like to do. And I recommend it to anybody who can afford it. It's a wonderful spot to be in. Is there a particular reason why you've got to that uh, fork in the road now? It's a bit of a leading question in saying that, you know, do the events of the past two years have led you to a point where you want to unburden yourself of these, uh, these requirements? Probably I should have done it earlier. Uh, when my business was bought by Sprott in, at the end of 2011, we were entering a very deep and very painful bear market and resources. And I made a pledge to myself, my fellow shareholders, my employees, and my clients that I would see them through the bear market. Now, the truth is I overstayed a little bit. You know, I probably could have stepped out at 2019, 2020, but there were a few tasks left undone. Uh, and when I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish, the joys of working within the Sprout organization began to be exceeded by the uh, frustrations associated with maintaining my securities licenses and the restrictions on commercial freedom of speech. Uh, and also the administrative burdens. Uh, what I like doing is securities research and communication. And what happened to me is I found myself spending 50 or 60% of my time running a business and only you know, 40 or 50% of my time uh, doing either the teaching or the research that I enjoy. And <laughs> the idea that I should, at this stage in life, when I don't have to work at all, be engaged in something that isn't pleasant is stupid, frankly. <laughs> Fair enough. So you, you kind of brought this up. Uh, why did or how did the marriage between you and Sprout come about? What, what was the benefit for that marriage for you guys? <laughs> well, as I, as I started off by saying, the part of the business that's always been pleasant for me is Securities analysis, either credit analysis or equity analysis. And 
as an investor and speculator, it was very easy, given that I was doing a lot of research and paying for a lot of research, to build a financial services firm around that research, because I got to use the same research twice. And I had a very good speculative track record uh, as a money manager and as a speculator. As my business grew, the amount of time that I was able to spend doing what I liked, which was securities analysis, fell. And I spent more time running a business. That's the curse of being successful in some ways, Rick. Correct. So I was looking around for someone to run my business. Uh, and I happened upon a young Canadian investment banker who I had a high regard for, who'd built and sold a financial services business. And I began discussions with him about coming to run my business. And he called me and said, you know, we, I'm going to have to call off these discussions because Eric Sprott has hired me to run Sprott. Uh, I knew Eric very, very, very well. Uh, as a competitor, as a friend, as a customer in every regard. And, and this young man said uh, very intelligently, now we could continue our discussions about my running your business, but the ownership of the business would have to change. <laughs> you'd, have to be, you'd have to agree to be acquired by Sprott. I have long admired Eric Sprott, and I have often thought if I would cast my lot with anybody in the business, given his honesty and intelligence and his uh, naked aggression, uh, that it would be Eric Sprott. So from there, there was probably three months of negotiation between Eric, myself, and Peter Groskopf. Really, very quickly, uh, I decided that I would put my business into Sprott. I would return as much as I could to the part of the business that I enjoyed uh, and that they would run the business. Uh, not too long after that, uh, Eric decided to retire. <laughs> and what that meant was that many of the governance roles that had fallen to Eric and I had assumed would be his for the rest of time fell to me. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, the merger was a wonderful thing. We built a, a truly spectacular organization at Sprott through the down markets. We continued to invest in our people. We stayed true to our natural resource focus. We trade stayed true to the contrarian focus. Many other allegedly natural resource money managers suddenly went into literally and figuratively drugs you know, uh, technology, they showed their true stripes, which is to say they didn't have any. Uh, we built a business with $20 billion AUM, uh, managing money for over 300,000 investors worldwide. We built a spectacular franchise. I'm absolutely delighted to have been a part of that. I'm still delighted to be, I believe, their largest private client and their largest shareholder. I'm still a director. What I'm not is an employee. Fair enough. So the so you kind of touched on this, so we're going to jump around a little bit, but you touched on this, so I want to go down this path. You know, this move out of the the speculative market for a lot of investors in North America, particularly the resources industry, why didn't you go down that path? I mean, it seemed to be that there was an en masse movement, or the speculative money kind of moved out of mining and exploration into, you know, marijuana startups and, you know, whatever else they went into. Early in my career, in the aftermath of my first success, I believed that my investing skill set was sufficient enough that I could operate in businesses that I didn't understand as well. And I learned a few painful lessons, which is to say, like Malcolm Gladwell says, it takes you 10,000 hours to be good at something. And I didn't have 10,000 hours for technology and another 10,000 hours for psychedelics and another 10,000 hours for consumer durables. Also, my style as an investor is very much as a value investor and very much as a contrarian investor. And the fact that the hard money moved out of resources, the hot money, I'm sorry, not the hard money, the fact that the hot money moved out of resources and didn't like them made them more attractive to me. Precisely because resources were out of favor, 
some of the companies five years ago had valuation levels that were just absolutely too tempting. When I compared fairly well-run natural resource businesses that were selling at 75% of net asset value with businesses that I couldn't pronounce and would never understand, uh, selling at premiums that I also didn't understand, my decision was fairly simple. I have spent 45 years coming to understand the natural resource business. I'm a contrarian individual, and I spent 45 years understanding conventional financial services businesses. In retirement, I focus my investments on areas where I believe I have a durable competitive advantage, both in terms of knowledge and in terms of contacts. I also have no fear of missing out. Uh, if somebody tells me that they bought some unpronounceable crypto, crypto token at a mill, you know, a tenth of a penny, and it went to $10, congratulations. You know, I, I feel good. But I have absolutely no envy about that. Yeah. I have found that fear of missing out, with the exception perhaps of compound interest, is the greatest foe of the speculator. But this amount of money kind of moving in and out of the industry uh, would have surely changed the speculative industry as well. You've been, I think, really strong in kind of investing in that speculative side of the industry. So how did that side change with the fervor of cryptos and marijuana startups, all of these other things that came about? So what do you think the industry is worth? What would you pay, Ahmed, for a business that was losing $2 billion a year? Would you wow. pay six times losses, nine <laughs> times losses? If it was in favor, would you pay 15 times losses? The truth is that the industry is horrifically overcapitalized. That belies the fact that, say, 5% of the issuers generate so much performance that it lends credibility and even sometimes luster for the 90% of listings that are comprised of the lame, the halt, and the blind. Yeah. And the fact that crypto uh, might have taken 3 or $4 billion away from the exploration business, the fact that marijuana might have done the same thing, from my viewpoint, is an unalloyed good. The idea, too, that uh, you know, three or 400 former used car salesmen that used to disgrace the mining business are now crypto experts uh, or more properly, pot experts, something where they actually do real due diligence, yep. uh, I think is a benefit to the mining industry. Uh, you know, being rid of those people who have no specific expertise other than separating suckers from their money. Do you think that the, it became harder for the industry to raise money during that time because there were other sources? I think it had nothing to do with crypto. I think it had to do with the extraordinarily poor performance of the exploration business. In the early 1990s, Resources were deeply out of favor, and we had a tremendous boom in exploration stocks because we had a tremendous boom in discoveries. Money was spent intelligently. People were recycling the ideas that they generated in the decade of the 70s when there was also too much capital, but using capital much more prudently. We had these absolutely wonderful discoveries. The consequence of that is in a fairly weak market with regards to resource pricing, we had an insane bull market in exploration. And the insane bull market and exploration was due to something that the industry hasn't tried for a while. It was called performance. <laughs> I think, I mean, I think you, um, you know, you, you started off this interview by saying that, you know, you now are basically unshackled with what you can say. And yeah, you are going to make yourself a pariah if you say things like this, Rick. But I think, I think it's actually like, I think it's absolutely true. You know, this whole thing that, you know, sometimes you complain in the industry about the fact that, you know, money's moving out for all these external reasons. You know, like fundamentally, if we return value to investors, why would investors ever leave, right? Correct. Absolutely correct. And, you know, I, I don't want to uh, 
paint the entire industry with that brush. I tried to say that 5% of the issuers have generated such extraordinary performance that against the 95 that are dross, uh, that 5% has carried the whole industry. If you look across the history of the industry, you find families like the Lenin family. You find people like uh, Ross Beatty. You find people like mm -hmm. Bob Quartermain, uh, Clive Johnson, uh, mm -hmm. Jim Bob Moffat, these serially successful people who generate such insane returns uh, that year in, year out, billions of dollars flows into the, an exploration business, which loses $2 billion a year. The, the point of all this is that you really, really, really need to pick your people and pick your places. Yeah, and I think one of the things that, yeah, it's this faux pas is that, you know, we always give these industry averages. Yeah, but that's not true for exactly the purpose that you're making, right? Or the point that you're making, which is that, you know, not every dollar being spent is the same. So, you know, so, when, <laughs> so, you know, so, so that's a fundamental uh, assumption that we make. But that's not true. Like if you look at any sports teams or you know, any sports league, right? But yeah, like almost uh, in certain leagues, almost all the teams have exactly the same money. But you know, but one wins the uh, the championship and and the others don't. So whatever they are, right? So fundamentally, one is being more efficient in the way they operate or the way they utilize their resources, etc. Isn't that true for like exploration industry as well? Uh, well, listen, since I'm engaged in this sort of rant, which will cause many of the issuers to dislike me, let's go further. Maybe 15 years ago, a young intern came to work for us, and he was very smart. I couldn't keep him busy. And I said, okay, what I'd like you to do now is I'd like you to pull uh, five years of balance sheets and income statements from a random group of exploration juniors. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to tell you what I'm looking for, uh, because it'll be too easy for you to find it. I want you to look at the balance sheets and the income statements, and I want you to tell me what is obvious there? Not knowing what was obvious, just giving him something to do and trying to figure out the way he thinks. And after, after about 10 days, he comes back. He says, okay, I've got it. I know it. And I was thinking, well, this is very interesting because I don't know what it is. He said, uh, in my sample, and admittedly 25 isn't a statistically via, you know, verifiable sample given that number of listings. But in my 25 company sample, over 65% of the money raised was spent on general and administrative expense, and 35% went in the ground. Now, in the private side of the business, if you and I generated a prospect and we sold it to tech, they might give us a 12 to 15% GNA override. But in the TSXV junior resource index, at least with a subset of 25 randomly chosen, 65% of the capital raised didn't go in the ground. So when you talk about the fact that money is spent differently, uh, money is spent very differently than most investors think. You Correct. have, not surprisingly, serially successful people like Ross Beatty, who we used to joke throw nickels around like manhole covers, uh, who were <laughs> extremely efficient spending money. That's right. But they were also able to raise and deploy money at a scale where they generated more exploration expenditures relative to general administrative expense. If you look at the industry as a whole, though, the junior, the publicly listed junior exploration industry, it's unsustainable with these levels of GNA. Just as a complete aside, Rick, uh, you know, like during my research project, I did kind of something similar. So, yeah, at one point I went and did some uh, graduate research and uh, yeah, I came to the same conclusion that actually the way you, know, you could very easily identify companies that behave uh, differently based on how they're spending their money. Correct. And, you know, that behavior has a direct relationship to, you know, essentially the success they have. 
Now, often it's not, you know, like sometimes it's not discovery success, but just the ability to, uh, you know, turn over projects and to move to better kind of projects, etc. You know, like that, that's, ex- uh, that's exactly what you kind of want to see. And so you're on the opposite and you see the behavior, which is companies spend money badly and spend it on the same, you know, like portfolio projects over a decade. Yeah, you know, and and so you got to argue whether that's the best uh, money being spent or not. I don't think there's any argument. No, that's that's right. <laughs> so yeah, so here's an obvious question to you: If what we're saying seems so obvious, how come it's it's not a general understanding across kind of the investment space? Uh, I think that not just in mineral exploration, but in equity investing in general, that the last forty years have been extremely benign. The period 1982 to 2022 has been extremely benign. Uh, we've lived through uh, a real boom, a demographic boom, you know, with the baby boomers coming of age and earning as opposed to costing. Yep. Uh, that, that's over, by the way. <laughs> We're dying now. Uh, but also a period of declining real interest rates, which meant lower cost of capital, uh, which meant higher share price valuations. But we also, uh, earlier in this 40-year cycle, benefited from increasing participation in the labor force by women. So we accessed more intellectual capital than we had. Internationalization, globalization, Mm -hmm. free trade, a really benign time. We we have been through probably the most benign period in human history. And it's made us very, very, very aggressive as investors. It has taught us to uh, value narrative as much as we value arithmetic. Now, I happen to believe that the wind is coming out of all those sails. I don't think that you can raise, you, pardon me, that you can lower interest rates too much below zero. That's all right. I see economic uh, nationalism uh, reducing mm-hmm. the benefits of uh, globalization. The benefit that we saw during the Reagan years of the early 80s with the reduction in the growth of government, by the way, they never shrank government, they just reduced its growth. That's over, you know, around the world. Uh, social rents and regulations are on the increase. So that I think that the period that we're heading into uh, is going to be less benign than the period that we've been through. The only thing that gives me hope, really, uh, for the next 20 years, will be the convergence of various technologies. The fact that we still live in a culture where, you know, six pimply-faced high school kids can commandeer a garage in Sunnyvale, California, and out pops Google. What's cool now for the next 20 years, I think, and we're getting far afield from mining, we're talking in a very general sense, I think those six kids are likely going to be in Mumbai or Lagos or Kinshasa or La Paz. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's a a fantastic point in the sense that you kind of give the macroeconomic view. uh, Yeah, it's also, you know, that kind of 1980s to 2000s kind of period. Uh, you know, also coincided with the largest amount of people kind of moving from uh, rural setting to yes. urban setting. Yes. Yeah. So, so, the, so the consumerism, I think, in that uh, in that phase was obviously the highest as well. And you just have to look at, you know, kind of, um, you know, if you just look at the amount of products or technologies that was developed, you know, pre nineteen eighty, and then from nineteen eighties to kind of the two thousands and two thousand ten. You know, you can fundamentally see that we completely blew apart that whole uh, that whole space. Isn't it ironic? that at the beginning of this epoch of prosperity, a communist, Deng Xiaoping, said to become rich is glorious. Now that the world has become rich, 
the head of the World Economic Forum says, you will own nothing and be happy about it. Uh, <laughs> there's probably right. nothing that speaks to the juxtaposition between the creation of wealth and the uh, destruction of wealth than the paradox uh, evidenced by those two figures of speech. And you make a good point in the sense about the, the importance of narrative during this time as well. You know, what's the, uh, the Silicon Valley, you know, like fake it till you make it kind of thing. It, you know, in exploration, uh, the hope that speculators have, uh, while it's um, admirable in one sense, it's so naive. I mean, probably a thousand <laughs> people have said to me, you know, in some vainglorious attempt to keep some piece of junk stock, Rick, if the price of gold goes up, what impact will, have, will that have on, you know, amalgamated aardvark explorations? And I'm forced to say, you know, sir, amalgamated aardvark is looking for gold. They don't have any gold. So realistically, if the price of something that you have none of goes up, it doesn't have any immediate impact on your fortune. It might have an impact on the number of naive speculators that they can hornswoggle, uh, which is to say it might make the share price go up. It'll have no impact on the fundamental value. Uh, that's what I mean about the exploration business, at least the lame, the halt, and the blind part of the exploration business being funded by hope and narrative as opposed to science and arithmetic. Rick, you made this point, you know, like because you've had this career, you've obviously seen this changing tide, uh, you know, like you said, the narrative over the arithmetic. Do you think it's harder for you to find uh, investors if you are more of the arithmetically driven uh, kind? No, I mean, I've learned how after 45 years to find investors. Uh, and that's by not trying. Yeah. Well, success, success is usually a pretty good way of attracting them. But teaching. I mean, one thing is I have a reputation now, and it's ironic uh, now that I won't accept investors. You know, I just invest my own money. Now that I won't accept investors, thousands of people, literally thousands of people want to invest with me, which is hugely ironic. <laughs> um, yeah. But the best people in the business can always raise money, even in the worst market and even in bad times. In 2014, 2015, if Lucas Lundin would have said, Rick, uh, I'm sorry, but I got to get you up at three o'clock this morning because that's the only time I have. And I want to take you through something I'm doing right now. Man, I'd have my alarm clock set for 2.15 so I could have a cup of coffee ready. So at three o'clock in the morning, I'd be ready to listen. You know, the best people will always be able to raise money. And backing the best people in the worst time is the best speculative strategy. In a good market, the Lundines can raise money at two or three times NAV. In a bad market, they have to raise money at half NAV. The worst markets are the least risky. The best markets are the most risky. It's a function of price. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point that, you know, people think that when the markets are hot, yeah, you have less risk. Well, actually, yeah, like like you're saying, I think you have far more risk because now you know, if you're raising money or you're capitalized at a certain point, you know, for you to have to maintain that capitalization or that uh, return, you know, it's even harder from that point. Um, I, you know what a bear market really is? It's a sale. Yeah, if that's you were, right. If you, yeah. Were going, if you were going to buy physical goods at a, at a shopping mall, you know, it's winter right now. So let's say, you know, you needed a new coat and you walked into a shopping mall and you expected to pay, I don't know, 300 bucks for a coat. If you saw a coat that you thought was worth 300 selling for 700, you'd be furious. You'd leave that store in a huff. If you went across the uh, the aisle of the shopping mall and that $300 coat was on sale for 180, you'd think that's great. 
Yet, if you own a share of stock for three bucks and the stock falls to a buck eighty, you're pissed. If the stock goes from three dollars to seven dollars, you're excited and you buy more. It's the same piece of paper. People treat financial aspects differently than they treat uh, physical assets. You know, some people will spend a long time researching the purchase of a ten thousand dollar used car, and they'll buy ten thousand dollars worth of stock. On a whim, got a hunch, bet a bunch. Yeah, so there's two things there that I guess I want to kind of dig into. One is this concept of narrative, right? So you've created this narrative around, I mean, look at crypto. I think like cryptocurrency is, I think, one of the best narrative-driven things around right now. You know, the the aspects of, um, you know, kind of the get-rich scheme, you know, it has aspects of pyramid schemes, it has aspects of FOMO, you know, it has all of these things. Mm -hmm. And you can see how they're all like, you know, uh, manipulating that to try to get people in. Yeah, so so your point that you know, like, why do people? Uh, my answer to your question about why do people buy a ten thousand dollars speculative stock and and don't you know go out and buy a car for ten thousand dollars is probably because the narrative around that stock is very well constructed. Maybe car makers could do better at, at constructing the narrative around the car as well. Uh, I, my only point with the car is that people spend more time studying a ten thousand dollar car than they do a ten thousand dollar stock purchase. Uh, I, I, I would agree with you that the margins on automobiles are less, so the best salesmen are drawn to stocks. Uh, I remember uh, the late, great Murray Pezum, one of the best promoters of all time in the 70s, said that uh, his materials cost, which was paper, was at that point in time $400 a ton. Uh, and if he could paint a dream on that piece of paper and sell it at some premium to $400 a ton, it was all margin. So the best salesman in the world, of course, will be drawn to a product with literally infinite margin. Correct. Yeah. And so the other point I wanted to make about your thing is around the concept of valuations, right? So, you know, so, you know, like if you're a gold exploration company and, you know, the price of gold is going up and down, to some degree, it's largely irrelevant what impact that should have on your, you know, company valuation, really. Uh, if you understood the development cycle and you understood the timeline of how things take to like find and then develop and all of that stuff, one of the things I, like I think maybe that uh, is lost a little bit is the ability of the money side of the industry to understand valuations uh, or, or, or what's an appropriate valuation or what's not an appropriate valuation. The money side of the industry, if you're talking about the investment bankers, have a positive disincentive to communicate Correct. the math. Their customer is the issuer, and their job is to raise capital for the issuer as efficiently, in other words, as expensively as possible. If an investment banker went out and said amalgamated aardvark is selling for four times its net present value, in other words, the thing you're paying a dollar for is worth a quarter, yep. they would earn no fee. That's fine. <laughs> so the, the financial services industry, at least on the sell side, has a positive disincentive to educate their customers around arithmetic. Uh, on the buy side, you have a very different circumstance. Uh, and the most successful buy side investors uh, are investors who pay attention to their downside before they worry too much about their upside. Uh, that isn't to say if you're buying an exploration stock that you're gonna buy it at a discount to net present value because arguably there is no net present value. You have to understand risk adjusted prospectivity you have to understand what the value proposition is. You, in exploration, have to do a risk-adjusted net present value calculation around answering a series of unanswered questions. 
you know, what's the target size? Uh, what is the probability that the target can grow? What is the method by which you cause the target to grow? Will the target extend to the third dimension? In, in other words, right. what will drilling prove? Uh, there's a whole series of unanswered questions. And when an intelligent speculator is participating in exploration, the question that he or she uh, should be asking management goes like this. What's the most important unanswered question around your property? How can we gain more knowledge about the property that will cause us to be, better be able to value the tenement? Uh, what is your target? And how did you, how did you develop your thesis? Was your thesis developed as a consequence of trying to hornswoggle money out of me? Or did it come about as a, as a consequence of facts on the ground? How long will it take you to get me a yes or no answer? How much money will it take you to get me a yes or no answer? Do you have that money? Or if so, how will you get the money? Because if you don't get the money, you can't get me the answer. It's worth nothing. Probably, Ahmed, over 40 years asking that question literally thousands of times, probably 80% of the respondents have said, oh, well, I never thought of it that way. In other words, 80% of the people that I've talked to in the exploration business didn't understand the exploration business. To them, the most important unanswered question was, will I still be drawing a salary yeah. from this company in 18 months? And while I could understand that that's important to them, <laughs> that's right. I don't give a damn. Uh, what I'm interested in is de-risking yep. a thesis around a property. So it's a process of answering a series of unanswered questions. The issuers will tell us that this is an asset-intensive business, mm -hmm. but that's hokum. Uh, one in 3,000 mineralized anomalies became a mine 50 yep. years ago when I was in university. The number is worse now. So if you think of it as a physical capital business, you're crazy. It's an intellectual capital business. It's like biotech uh, or algorithms. That's right. It's an uh, IP-driven business, really. It's a right. knowledge business. It's, it's answering a series of unanswered questions. And if you understand it differently than that, you're going to lose money unless you are a good enough social scientist or a good enough communicator that you can monetize a narrative against a naive population of hopers. I think this, yeah, like it's interesting why you say that because the narrative side of thing, you know, like your point that if you are a company that doesn't understand these kind of exploration fundamentals, you know, what is your actual, uh, you know, what is your game here? And I would, I would agree with you that I think a lot of people in this game don't quite understand, you know, exactly what it is. And you can see this behavior when people look at, you know, we're talking about exploration, but you can see this behavior when people look at exploration. You know, the, the concept that often, you know, people argue that what's the value of an exploration project or what's, uh, you know, what's the value of this company? I just think that's a wrong question to ask, right? The the question you should be asking is, what's the quantum of money required to get to the next logical uh, decision point? Yeah, and does the company have that money to get there or not? Or like, you know, if it's going to cost you $10 million, is that $10 million going to completely blow up the company? If it does, then you're probably in the wrong kind of property or wrong asset or whatever you're in. Well, I would argue a little bit that you need to understand your downside. One of the things I like to do with issuers is say, if you were to liquidate the company today, if you were to sell your exploration projects to another exploration company, what could you get for them? What's your company worth? Now, I'm not suggesting that I should get companies that are in the exploration phase at a discount to net present value, but I do want to know what my starting point is. 
the second thing that I want to know when you're talking about a $10 million exploration program is I want either the CEO or the exploration manager to, to tell me what the earliest indications that they're wrong is. Because if you can disprove, if you've raised $10 million and you can disprove your thesis. Yeah, why would you spend? Half, yeah, exactly. There's no reason at all to spend the next eight and a half million. But issuers do it again yep. and again and again and again. And I go back to these guys and say, so tell me, did you deliberately drill your worst idea first? Is that why you spent the whole $10 million? Having them understand what constitutes failure at the same time that they're able to tell you what new question a yes answer will engender allows you to understand the intellectual foundation of the company. It allows you to understand how they use the intellectual capital, which is where all the value is to develop the physical capital. So this concept, you know, like what you're talking about, how companies spend money, how much of that do you think is driven by investors? None. Really? Okay. It used to, I mean, during bear markets, it's driven by investors, yep. but in markets like these where schlep, schmuck, and schmo. <laughs> Uh, can raise $2 million if they pay enough commission. Yeah. Uh, it's entirely driven by uh, investment bankers yeah. uh, and by issuers. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the industry is hopelessly overcapitalized. Yeah, yeah, I think I, th I think it's an interesting point because I, yeah, like I often wonder whether, maybe this is not so much for exploration companies, but particularly for mining companies, you know, their, uh, their ridiculous behavior during, uh, you know, the, the boom cycles, you know, I wonder how much of that is driven by investors, you know, because, you know, you know, like investors at that point want as much value into the company as possible. Well, not value. Uh, when they buy in the narrative, they want the company to monetize the narrative, even if the narrative is wrong. Correct. <laughs> Uh, I mean, the you know, it, I don't know that this is true, uh, but I have been told that the uh, components of the XAU as a group, the index, uh, in the period 2000 to 2010, when the gold price increased from $250 to over $1,500, shrank cash flow per share. <laughs> now, that took skill, yeah. if it's true. Yeah. That took real skill. I mean, they they made insane acquisition decisions. They made insane capital allocation decisions. They let the costs go crazy. Uh, but if you think about a circumstance where you're free cat, where you issue so many shares and spend money so, so foolishly that your free cash flow per share goes down in a period where the price of the commodity that you're selling increases sixfold, that's an impressive achievement. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's pretty hard to do. So if you're doing that, man, you're, re you're really doing something good or bad there, <laughs> however you want to classify it. And so the other um, point that I wanted to get back to, which you made earlier, was um, around the, the, the narrative that a lot of these companies utilize. And personally, I find it a little bit uh, interesting when we kind of have the uh you know the, the woe is us kind of mentality about our oh, investors don't like us because you know the, you know the point you made around that you know like the the majority of these companies are kind of working on the model that as long as you can keep selling the narrative uh you know you can keep getting investors in but you know fundamentally if you broke it down you know that whole logic is built around trying to get the next sucker through the door and when one sucker gets Correct. burnt you know they leave eventually you're going to run out of suckers at some point, right? Or they're going to be a diminished group of suckers that you could probably keep utilizing. I think the industry needs to prepare itself for that eventuality. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, if what we're doing is selling narrative, here's an offer. I'll tell all your viewers who've lost money on junior mining stocks. If you send me 
$10 a year, I'll tell you that gold is going up. You can have the narrative for $10 a year, and it'll cost you a lot less than your securities portfolio if your securities portfolio is based on that narrative. Yep. Uh, narrative should be free. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I saw a 44-page deck the other day around a $5 million raise. And the 44-page deck uh, was all about the gold price. Not all about the gold price, but 20 pages of it was about the gold price. This company didn't have any gold. And, and then, you know, interestingly, some of it actually had to do with the exploration thesis, which I did find interesting. Uh, but a 44-page book for a $5 million raise, uh, I don't know how much money per page that is, but it, 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 it seems to me that if they had something viable to sell, that they could have explained it to me in eight pages. Yeah, that's fine. Man, we're not going to make any friends here, you know, if you talk about this. But, um, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think... It, what do I care? I, I think yeah. this is the, the point is that, you know, like I, I mean, personally, I don't really mind either because I think we should talk about these things because, you know, people sure. on the other side of the fence are talking about it. So if we put our head in the sand, you know, eventually, you know, like we will come to an adverse outcome and then people are going to go, well, how did we get here? Well, it was pretty clear how we got here, you know, like it's just that mm-hmm. nobody wanted to do anything uh, while we were getting here. Yeah, even like, you know, this whole thing that you talk about, uh, you know, like the 44-page booklet and, you know, 25 or 20, 25 pages are about the gold price. You know, like, can you look at any copper exploration company that doesn't tell you the whole, their view on the copper market and uh, all of, and it's like, man, like, what what is your asset? How good is your asset? Can you tell me about that? I don't want to know about your projections about copper price or any of this stuff. You know, it when people hear me say this, um, they say, well, Rick is so negative. I'm not negative at all. The industry's made me a fortune. Yep. I just don't believe that I should pay somebody for narrative. I believe that I should pay somebody for hard work and results. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing particularly negative about that. If you ask me a question uh, about what are the habits, uh, what are the traits of serially successful people in the mining business, you'd find me to be a raging optimist. <laughs> That's because you choose not to work with uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the charlatans, let's say. Sadly, I've associated with both, uh, but uh, you know, never on purpose, of course, uh, with the charlatans, but some of them are really, truly superb salesmen. So. <laughs> yeah, like, and I don't mind. I think, yeah, like, we, we need all of these type of people in the industry. Yeah, like, I, I, like, yeah, I don't mean to say that, you know, like, if you can make a good living selling a story, yeah, good on you. I think it's great that you're doing that. But let's not then complain about the outcome that we get to when we have too many of these people doing a cert- certain thing. One of the things are, mercifully, the industry has some people who are hugely commercially and technically competent who can also sell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember uh, Bob Quartermain uh, coming to sell me on Pretium when he first started it. Now, it helped that he'd made me a fortune on Silver Standard. Mm-hmm. So he could begin the selling process by saying, I told you so. <laughs> yeah. But the story was very simple. Uh, the story was the mineralized complex at uh, you know, sulfurets, all that had 100 million ounces of contained gold. It was just very low grade. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, their third of the deposit uh, was probably worth a third of what Seabridge's was. Uh, and their market cap was non-existent and Seabridge was at half a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. So on a valuation basis, they had more upside than downside, but more particularly that if you had a, a mineralized universe of 100 million ounces, there was probably some area where there had been sufficient rock preparation 
to generate a concentration of mineralization. And it just so happened that there was a structure called the Bruce Jack Fault that had five different holes in it that exceeded half an ounce uh, per ton. And he said, so what I have is this big, big, big mineralized system, a 14 kilometer long structure that could uh, concentrate it and five pierces that demonstrate the potential of what I'm trying to accomplish. I believe that with 20 drill holes, uh, I can determine whether or not I can develop a one or two million ounce high grade deposit along the Bruce Jack Fault. It took him three minutes yep. to explain that thesis to me. He's an extremely good salesman. Mm -hmm. He could say, I told you so. But the truth is that what he was selling was so simple. Mm -hmm. He didn't have to tell me that the gold price was going to go up. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> He didn't have to do anything like that. And, you know, I, I've experienced the same thing with Ross Beatty. Ross Beatty has been serially successful. I've participated in 14 companies with Ross, and I think I've enjoyed 12 mm -hmm. 10 baggers. Mm -hmm. uh, and his story is always really, really, really simple. This is what we're trying to accomplish. These are the steps to get there. This is how long I think it'll take us to there. This is what I think can go wrong. And this is what I need you to do to help me. And then, of course, the greatest of all, Robert Friedland, mm -hmm. uh, who could absolutely, if he ever wanted to, tell a lie, sell a lie. You know, I mean, he, he, he you know, literally could sell icebergs to Eskimos, but he doesn't have to. He's been the most successful explorationist of his epoch, uh, a superb salesman. His cost of capital is always low. But he's always delivered. Yep, that's fair. So we can't have this discussion around investing in exploration or anything like that without talking about failure. Yeah, like what's your appetite for failure? You obviously have to have one if you're going to play in this game. Huge, huge. Uh, most exploration decisions are mistakes. You have to play the game hard enough and, and hopefully with private placement so that you get some warrants so that your winners amortize your losers. Mm -hmm. The end result of most, most exploration decisions is a, you know, 15, 20, 25, 30% loss. If you play the game 20 times, you have, to you have to expect to lose 12 or 13 of those times. You have to expect to break even a couple times, but hopefully you get a 10-bagger, mm -hmm. and a 10-bagger with a warrant becomes a 15-bagger, mm -hmm. and a 15-bagger amortizes a hell of a lot of sin in the rest of your portfolio. Mm -hmm. That's the way the game is played. Uh, I... I've said on numerous channels and people shake their head in wonderment. Most of the wealth I now invest sensibly, I got by speculating. Some would say nonsensically. Uh, and the truth is that most of that wealth was concentrated in a fairly few decisions. Companies that gave me 10 to one returns, 20 to one returns, 50 to one returns, whatever they were. Almost every 10 bagger of my life with maybe two exceptions took five years to achieve. And almost every one delivered me at some point in time during the time I held it, during the five years or six years that I held it, a 50% decline in share price. Mm -hmm. So you have to have enough courage of your conviction. In other words, you have to have a, a deep enough understanding of the value of the proposition that you're not unnerved by the price. Mm -hmm. You have to have the patience so that compounding a series of yes answers can give you... Uh, a 10-bagger, and you have to be tenacious. Mm -hmm. uh, you absolutely have to be tenacious. I, I've done a lot of work on the genesis of my 10-baggers, uh, you know, in hopes for more. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> and, 
you know, what I've learned was most of them originated in horrific markets, meaning I was able to get great assets with very, very, very low entry charges. Mm -hmm. Most of them did nothing or went down during the first 12 to 18 months of my holdings. Mm -hmm. Almost all of them uh, were as a consequence of associating myself with very, very high quality people. Mm -hmm. uh, almost all of them required at least a five-year hold and all of them experienced volatility that would remind the average person of a rodeo. <laughs> Uh, and you, you, you have to be fiscally and psychologically uh, rugged in order to play that game. You know, what you're saying about, you know, kind of the volatility and how, uh, you know, like how these stocks or equities kind of perform or securities perform. Uh, you know, would it be appropriate to say then that uh, the market capitalization of these things probably is not a fair valuation of what the underlying asset is at all times? Would it be a fair thing to say? Well, I think further than that, I think it's, I mean, the information around price only is valid if you have some estimation of value. Mm -hmm. The share price is a floating abstraction. Yeah, that's right. That's really what it is. I mean, the share price is purely how much money you can raise at a certain point of the cycle or, or things like that, right? That's, that's really all it's for. That's from an issuer's point of view. From a check writer's point of view, it's just a floating abstraction. Mm -hmm. Money is made in the delta between the value and the price. Mm -hmm or the prospective uh, value in price. People pay slavish attention to the price. I know, I know. And price, price information is worth nothing if you don't have an opinion of value. I know. I, like, I mean, the reason why I ask this question is because, you know, this is one of the things that I find quite frustrating when people, you know, like often will kind of come and like, you know, I, like talk about things, um, you know, where they'll say that, oh, you know, like the price has gone up or the price has gone down. And, you know, like it's irrelevant. Like, you know, like is the underlying asset that they have or like you said is the underlying understanding getting to a point where we know that there's actual value or there's a, a, we know there's no value you know like are we moving closer or further away and people go but the price is going up so it's getting the project is getting better and you're like no the project could still be terrible it's just that that's a pure reflection of where people wanted to put their money yeah. in that day it's a truly insane way to think yeah. um if there has been no change in the value of the company and the price has doubled, arithmetically, the company is precisely half as attractive. <laughs> if there has been no change in the affairs of the company and the share price falls by half, arithmetically, the shares are precisely twice as attractive. Correct. Most people don't have enough courage of their conviction to believe the narrative unless they're getting support from the price action. Yeah, and I think that's maybe that's the reason, right? It's because in void of actually having some real understanding, you need to Correct. augment it based on Correct. some metric. And the metric is share price. It sounds really hubris-ridden to say, but those people are my normal and natural victims. Mm -hmm. It's not that I sell them anything. Uh, it's just that if I own a dollar stock that goes to $4 and not much has changed with the affair of, of the company, when all the people come in that are attracted by the momentum, I allow them to buy my stock. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, exactly. They, they exist to me as a source of liquidity. Similarly, if there's a stock that was attractive at $4, uh, but for some reason the price falls for $2, and people don't spend an awful lot of time familiarizing themselves with the affairs of the company, but rather than that, let the share price shake them out, uh, they're also a source of liquidity. Mm -hmm. 
I sort of believe in one sense that you do what's the easiest in the market. Yep. If the market is predominantly populated by sellers, the easiest thing to do is buy mm-hmm. and you should do it. If conversely, if the market is predominantly populated by buyers and the easiest thing to do, the place where there's less competition uh, is on the ask, then you should be a seller. Yeah, that's right. Maybe we're being a little bit, uh, you know, like maybe we're believing drinking our own Kool-Aid here a little bit. But, you know, like I, I sometimes think that, you know, this level of understanding doesn't quite make it all the way through. Like, you know, for, for example, like sometimes you look at projects which for all intents and purposes have held exactly the same project value. And yet you look at, you know, the capitalization and, and take that as their market value. You know, it will go from being, you know, a billion dollars down to being $50 million dollars. But the project value was probably always around two hundred million, yeah. And 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 so people get really hung up on 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 this thing where you know people inside the company as well as uh, you know people outside, uh, particularly like yeah, like I spent a I spent a bit of time with private equity, and I think we sometimes got a little bit too hung up around the the market value of products. It's like you know what's the actual asset value here that we should be transacting on. I think the market value is only relevant if it varies substantially from the asset value. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I really, truly believe the market value is a floating abstraction. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was Charlie Munger, uh, Buffett's partner, mm-hmm. that said, in the very short term, uh, the market is a voting machine. <laughs> it measures sentiment. In the longer term, the market's a weighing machine. Yep. Money is made by discounting the way people vote in favor of what an asset weighs. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly correct. Yep. And I think, you know, like, I mean, we talked about this in the pre-interview, where, you know, like some of the other, uh, I guess, metrics of valuing things on the market, uh, you know, like uh, P&E, uh, like, you know, ratios, all of these type of things that have been applied in this industry, particularly in kind of the exploration game, are just completely irrelevant. You know, they don't mean anything because, you know, like, you're not like, you know, you're trying to use something that uh, works for one uh, asset class and trying to apply it an asset class where it has absolutely zero relevance. Think about this. I mean, think about how relevant PE might be when uh, the reserve life is three years. There's no sustaining capital investment because the orbite isn't going to last. Free cash flow is very, very high. The idea that you would value uh, a three-year mine life at a 15 PE when your terminal value in three years is zero is the height of insanity. <laughs> And I see it all the time. Yeah, I know. Um, and and it just, I think, like, even simple things like, uh, you know, like, if you fundamentally understood any mine being built, you know, it's basically a debt business, you know, like, it's really around mm-hmm. how, you know, like, the payability is probably far, probably a far more important metric than anything else. And, yeah, sometimes people, uh, you know, they just go, ah, oh, yeah, it has... Yeah, this is how much uh, money it's going to make. And it's like, yeah, yeah but yeah, is it actually going to make the money to kind of pay it back in a time before the resource actually runs out? You know, like what, what is the true years of profitability we're actually going to have in this asset? Certainly 30 years of being a lender to the mining and oil and gas invest, uh, business has made me a much better investor. Uh, understanding the net present value and understanding the probability of the, of the narrative as juxtaposed to the time value of money. Uh, understanding that the worst piece of debt on any balance sheet is better than the best piece of equity. Um, The conservatism that's involved in being a debt investor, because you can't confuse yourself with the upside because you don't get it, Mm -hmm. uh, makes you a much better equity investor, or at least has made me a much better equity investor. Yeah. Is that because you understand the, the downside essentially much better in that sense? I also understand the construct of the upside. 
uh, I mean, I understand, first of all, that the word could is not collateral. <laughs> That's true. That's true. You know, if you give me as a decent salesman, I'm not a great salesman, but I'm a decent salesman. If you give me the use of the word could, should, or would in an unrestrained fashion, I can sell you anything. That's right. Or potential. Yeah, the most overused term. It causes people to take loss of probability. Mm -hmm. uh, life is not about certainties. It's about probabilities. It's about the juxtaposition of probabilities. Uh, and the wonderful thing about being a lender is it focuses you very much on probabilities. Uh, and it gets you to discount very aggressively uh, could, should, and would. It's interesting. It's interesting, too, uh, if I might bore you with this detail. No, no, go away. Go, go for it. Investors and speculators need to pay more attention to debt. Uh, uh, the results that uh, Sprott as a corporation got in the period 2011 to 2019, uh, which saw the TSXV resource index, the junior resource index, decline by 88%. The uh, Sprott lending business conducted on balance sheet in Sprott generated a 15% compound annualized internal rate of return. Now, 15% annualized compound internal rate of return is a very handsome standalone rate of return. But when you juxtapose that with an 88% loss of principle, uh, it will tell you the benefits of a realistic approach mm -hmm. in both bull markets and bear markets. If you give up hope, and focus on return on capital employed, you will do better in thick and thin. So I want to hark back to something that you said around probabilities. So do you think that uh, people understand uh, the risk profile associated with probabilities? I mean, we can't have this discussion without kind of talking about risk in some ways, right? Because a large part of like debt, you know, like when we're talking about debt, and this is kind of maybe the link to it, you know, you really need to understand where your risk lies and uh, where it doesn't lie when you're getting into the kind of the debt business or the lending business. I think that speculators rely on hope, which is why they lose money. Uh, there will be comments in social media uh, around this discussion where people said, Rick always talks about risk. He always talks about probability. He always says the same thing. Uh, as though, first of all, the facts don't change. And my job is to make them feel good about their stupidity. Um, you know, neither of those are true. Uh, I, I don't think that speculators, the unsuccessful speculators, which constitute 80% of speculators, I don't think they understand the concept of probability. Uh, I, I think, too, that too often uh, they're motivated by simple declarative statements, mm -hmm. which is to say they confuse the promise of certainty with the existence of certainty. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, actually. That's a very good way to put it. And I would, I would suggest the fact that you uh, would like certainty is interesting, but not relevant. Uh, what you would like is much less important than what you might be able to have. What you have is a series of probabilities, which are either good or bad, but you almost never have certainties. There are some certainties in the market, but they require long time horizons. Mm -hmm. Here's a certainty for you, an absolute certainty. If you have a commodity where uh, its consumption, its utilization is essential for the material well-being of mankind, so that demand for the commodity is assured over a period of time, and the industry-wide selling price of the commodity is less than the cost of production, mm -hmm. which is to say the industry is in liquidation, mm -hmm. that commodity price will go up. That is a certainty unless society invents a substitution for that commodity. Or doesn't require it anymore, right? Yeah. For three and a half years ago, when nobody wanted to own uranium, 
because no uranium companies were making money, there was actually a certainty. It was an extremely unpopular certainty. But the certainty was this. If the price of uranium didn't go up to the incentive cost of production in six years, the lights would go out. It's that simple. That's the certainty. Yet, because there was no certainty as to the time frame, people preferred to ask themselves questions where the answer began with if, where there was no certainty, than asking themselves a question where the answer began with when, mm -hmm. when there was no time certainty. I mean, this is ironic behavior. The very, very, very few subjects where there is certainty in outcome, there usually isn't certainty in terms of time. And it is precisely in those circumstances where investors shun certainty. Mm -hmm because they don't like it. The relevance of time frame yeah, in, in, in things like uh, commodities, I think you, you can play this game in commodities because you can always have a fundamental view on uh, you know, whether society will uh, require a commodity more or less or will be substituted or, you know, or what we will do with it. You know, we, like, you know, we talked about the coal story in the pre-interview. I mean, I think it's a classic example of it. It is. And the, you know, like we were supposed to be phasing out coal, yet you know, the last couple of years has yeah. seen a, a huge intake in coal. Well, there, there again, there's another certainty, certainty in terms of 10 or 20 years. Many speculators pay attention to the big thinkers' narratives. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, they get their economic advice and their advice around physics uh, from the noted scientists, uh, Angela Merkel, uh, and whatever that young Swedish woman's name is. Mm -hmm. And they allow the popular narrative to distract them from the facts on the ground. Mm -hmm. The facts on the ground are that 1.2 billion people on earth have no access to electricity at all. Correct. Another 2 billion people on earth uh, experience energy poverty, which is to say either inefficient electricity or electricity that's too expensive for them to afford. Yep. One of the great achievements of humankind in the last 30 years has been the incredible upgrade in the living standards of the bottom half of humanity. Mm -hmm. And mercifully for us, that's continuing. Those people want to live like you and I live. And increasingly, thankfully, they're getting the means to do that. Just to one, add one point is like, you know, like they want to come up, but, you know, we don't necessarily want to go down either. Right. So, yeah. So that's, I Correct. think, a, a, key, a key point as well your consumption of electricity is going to increase and not Correct. just because of automobiles. Yep. So is mine. But most importantly, the consumption of electricity in the bottom half of mankind is going to increase, yep. which means that we need all forms of electricity and we need them to be affordable. Mm -hmm. The second thing about coal that people forget is that emerging markets people are being asked by the big thinkers in the world to shoulder the burden. Yep. People say that the increase in carbon consumption by China and India is unsustainable when their consumption on a per capita basis per person is less than 20% of ours and where the historic coal loadings were contributed by Western countries. Yep. The only way that carbon loadings are going to approach the levels suggested by the Kyoto Protocols is a drastic decline in living standards <laughs> That's in right. developed countries. Yeah. And it ain't going to happen. Yeah. In Canada, everybody says we have to go to a low-carbon environment and you have to pay for it. Yeah. The idea that the Indus Indian peasantry is going to sacrifice their upside for the well-being of an SUV-driving suburban Canadian well-intentioned green person that they are right. is nil. Yeah. 
the but let's not forget they recycle Rick, so you know, so they so they do their part, right? Of course, of course. These kind of fundamental things, I I, I think, like yeah, you know, like for example, uh, like the large percent, most of our life currently. I mean, this whole interview is being done largely because of uh, the the aspect of cheap electricity that we have, right? Yes. Uh, yes. You know, you look at um, the 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 medical care that we can provide, the way we travel, the way we do, uh, the way we communicate. All of these things are largely built on. Uh, a cheap source of electricity now fundamentally you know if you take the view that coal is now you know like it's on the nose and and you know people don't want to go down that path but then you also then have to do the analysis and say well what is the act the commensurate kind of replacement that's going to come in that's going to allow us to keep producing electricity cheaply because otherwise we couldn't maintain the the, the standard that we can and I think you know, in your logic also, I kind of look at it, you know, the coal story. We didn't talk about this in the pre-interview, but yeah, if if there is this move out of coal uh, to a point where, you know, like the, the value of, of, of coal assets is low, then that actually makes it more appealing for people that are looking to produce a cheap source of electricity because now you don't have to pay the premium that you did, you know, a couple of years before. I'm willing to believe that uh, massive investments in the grid at addressable grid technologies and massive investments in nuclear power and massive investments in intermittent um, alternative energy mm -hmm. means that we will be much less coal dependent 30 years from now than we are now. But that leaves the next 30 years, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen the outcome of early experiments. Germany would be a classic example. Uh, Germany decided post Fukushima to scrap their nuclear fleet. Uh, two consequences of that. One, uh, electricity bills in Germany have gone up by 500%. Yep. At the same time, ironically, that uh, German consumption of dirty lignite coal has skyrocketed. Yep. There are no free lunches. And ironically, of course, Germany is also importing a, a lot of energy from France, mm -hmm. where it's generated from nuclear. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. And, and, we, and we see, you know, I mean, the idea as an example that Germany, as rich as it is, could be powered by solar power when it's so far north where the sun doesn't shine. Yeah, I know. Um, I remember Ontario Hydro for a while was paying 80 cents a kilowatt hour for rooftop solar in Toronto. Why on earth that far north uh, would you want to run or attempt to run uh, a grid based on a scarce resource. Mm -hmm. And of course, what happens at night? Yeah, that's hard. You know, relying on solar at night is a bit of a challenge. Now, when you make massive investments in the grid and the grid becomes addressable, where people are paying a premium to buy uh, peak time power mm -hmm. and they're buying off time power at a discount and hopefully you know, storing it in a $40,000 battery wall, yep. all of a sudden the grid itself becomes the battery. Yep. And then all of a sudden wind and solar and all these things begin to make real sense. Yeah. But that period is way, way, way off in the distance. And this is an important point that you you, you kind of make is like the timeline of things occurring is something that, you know, like you have to take into account as well. You know, like we can't just turn yeah. the Titanic around in one year. Yeah, it's, not, it's just not going to work that way. You know, Glencore recently bought a partner out of a tier one uh multi-decade coal deposit, a 30-year coal deposit, mm -hmm. and they bought them out for one and a half times cash flow. Now, you could say that the, you know, the cash flow that happens from 20, you know, 20 years from now has no net present value, and it becomes a stranded asset. So what? One and a half times cash flow for a 30-year reserve? Yep. Uh, that truly is the triumph of narrative over arithmetic. Yeah, that's why. 
it's you know so we kind of keep coming back to this kind of concept of like narrative winning out over uh arithmetic do you see um yeah so in a world where you know like we kind of have all of these uh opinions being uh put out there that you know the uh the the cost of capital is going to go up you know like do you think that you know like part of the reason why we are stuck in this loop is largely because you know the whole aspect of money never being cheaper than it ever is now you know like if that environment changes do you see that that shift occurring in in the way that the markets work i sure do <laughs> I sure do. I mean, I think it has to, right? I mean, if money becomes more expensive, like what well, like you have to change your story. I believe we've been through an ex- extremely benign economic circumstance. Mm-hmm. And while I believe that uh, 20 years from now or 25 years from now the world will be better than it is now, mm-hmm. uh I believe we have a reckoning. Uh I'm not suggesting that we go through a, a depression or a recession. but i do suggest that after a 40 year period of declining interest rates you can't take them too far below zero for too long i mean yeah. think about the reality of negative interest rates that means that you as a young man work hard uh, and save and you decide that you are going to give me the benefit of immediate production uh, consumption not you yep so you lend me the money take the t- credit risk you forced all consumption in favor of me and i give you back less money than you gave me i know now how much sense does that make i know well i mean like how sustainable is that in the long run right like it, yeah it like clearly someone's going to run out of money any system that subsidizes spending at the expense of savings yeah will ultimately generate a, a reduction in capital stock and will be self-correcting yep. and that that self-correction will be interesting uh, you know it's something that the world's going to have to face i'm not going to face it because mm-hmm. i'm extremely well capitalized. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And if you're a capital provider, the idea that capital is becoming more expensive is a very good thing. Yeah. You know, i'm at age 69 i'm not a capital consumer anymore. I'm not raising money for anything. I'm allocating capital to things. Mm-hmm. So a circumstance where capital becomes more scarce and as a consequence where the rents on capital are higher benefits an old fat guy like me. Uh it doesn't benefit uh a capital consumer a younger mm-hmm. person an issuer but also like fundamentally you know if capital becomes expensive then uh you know people have to think harder about uh how they go raise capital and 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 then yep. investors think about how how much they want to actually capitalize things so you know so in that environment surely our performance will increase you know like you you would think logically it has to increase correct or we are all dumb you know that's the only other uh, outcome out of that well you know ultimately uh history takes care of dumb people mm-hmm. uh even collectives of dumb people the outcome isn't pretty uh but that happens yeah that's right yeah that's right i mean eventually there has to be that correction at, at some at some you, you know weimar weimar germany was a very dumb circumstance mm-hmm. they decapitalized germany uh and the result of the collective stupidity of the german people was a guy named adolf hitler mm-hmm. there are consequences of being stupid yeah Yeah, and the grave um i mean i have to say rick like we could keep going on this forever uh we have to we have to get you back on the show at some point because i look i look forward to it it's it's a, it's a delight to have an interviewer not say when will the price of gold go up it's it's nice yeah. to have discussions that are actually of value yeah like i don't know about you like you know like i obviously don't have the level of experience you do or or have seen these kind of cycles but you know like i often kind of sit in these in you know like these kind of discussions around um you know like how to improve the industry or something and people just go oh, well we just got to improve the improve the commodity price and you're like that is the last of our worries at this point yeah you know, there is a whole lot of 
capital inefficiency, uh, you know, performance inefficiency, all of these things. You know, we could be doing a lot more about fixing that rather than, you know, worrying about uh, this whole like narrative around where's the price going. You know, like I, I just think it's kind of irrelevant. I, I mean, frankly, the good news in the industry is, and I don't want to sound like an ESG type. Uh, mm-hmm. The good news in the industry is that there are more people that look like you and fewer people that look like me. There are people from around the world coming into the industry. They say there's a shortage of talent in the mining industry. No, there's a shortage of old white talent, uh, and that's dying out. And that's a good thing. There's more women in the industry. The idea Mm -hmm. that we could ignore the intellectual inputs of half of humankind is really phenomenally stupid. Uh, But there's some bad things. The industry has been taught some very bad habits. The 1970s taught taught investors that what they should look for is optionality in commodity prices rather than efficiency in production. And that yep. was a very, very, very back-asswards lesson. Uh, yeah, the investors. Right. You know, the, there was a wonderful cleansing that experienced that we experienced in the 1980s. You know, I was more principally involved in the oil and gas business then. And the decline in the oil price from $30 a barrel to $10 a barrel uh, made people for a while much, much, much better explorers and much, much, much better producers. The lame, the halt, and the blind that had populated the industry towards the end of the decade of the 70s went back to selling cars or whatever it was that they should have been doing and took them out of the oil business. There was a real cleansing of the deep of the gene pool that took place in Mm -hmm. bear markets. And ultimately, uh, I think the cleansing of the gene pool that happened among the producers in the last decade has made them, as an example, much more prudent allocators of capital today. Uh, how long that will last is a different question, of course. That's right. I mean, you know, like the the uh, the capital allocation in kind of the 2005 to 2010 boom, you know, was ridiculous. Exactly. Uh, yeah, like, uh, and, and I think, you know, like we've had someone on the show that kind of made the comment that, you know, it's always interesting when, uh, you know, like say acquisition behavior comes around in booms, because, you know, how often do you see ice cream salesmen buying uh, ice cream trucks at the start of winter? Yeah, right. like and it's like, but you know, so we seem to do that a lot at times. And you go, right. well, yeah. And then do we and do we wonder why we have problems with uh, you know, like capital return when when we're behaving in this way? Correct. And the other point that I think you made, which I quite like, and you kind of made it earlier as well, is around um, uh, you know, like technology. I think one of the one of the pieces that I think it's really going to change, and and maybe you know, arguably the industry hasn't been as as good at kind of utilizing it, is the the democratization of technology will allow us or allow different people to be involved in the industry. That's not just our industry, but a, across the board. All right. Uh, you know, you made the comment that yeah, it's going to be you know six people in the garage in Mumbai or uh, Lagos or something, and you just have to look at things like the prevalence of. Um, you know, telephone banking or you know, any type of mobile banking in uh, many African countries, you know, like they are far ahead of that, that curve because uh, the, the level of democratization they can get out of that technology, you know, is, is phenomenal. And I think maybe that's, you know, that's kind of the next revolution for us as well is that, well, why do we have to have people sitting, you know, in kind of a mining jurisdiction? Why can't we use the intellectual capital that's sitting on the other side of the world in a different way and, and utilize it in a different way? I think that's inter- that's completely true. I mean, almost every mineral deposit that's ever been discovered outcropped. We stumbled <laughs> exactly. over it. Yep. And, you know, we're going to have to do better exploring undercover uh, and projecting geology. We're going to have to do that. I have no idea how we're going to do that. It's going to be people like you uh, who figure that out. I'm, as an example, amazed 
uh, at the advances that the exploration business has made using aster imagery. Mm -hmm. uh, doing photo differentiation from space in 2000 kilometer blocks uh, and ruling out 99% of the 2000 kilometer block so that you can focus human activity mm -hmm. in places where, as an example, there's uh, alteration, where there's structure that's so big that it's mapped from space. Yep. Uh, the idea, as an example, that you could explore the Tethian metallogenic belt mm -hmm. because aster imagery requires you know, fairly sparse land cover in order yep. to work well, that you could explore an enormously perspective belt of rocks that is a consequence of sociology and uh, politics hasn't been explored with any technology more sophisticated than a pick and a mule. Yep. Uh, tells me that when we get around to the convergence of technologies that Robert Friedland expresses so eloquently that the future of exploration is very bright. Uh, mm -hmm. it's just that we don't know how we're going to get, my generation doesn't know how we're going to get to that future at all. Yeah. It involves technology we can't spell. Mm -hmm. It's going to be your generation that does that. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the, the, the hard part is that, A, we don't know the path yet, you know, how do we get from here to there, and we don't know the time that it takes, you know, like mm -hmm. to get there. And I always kind of express it that, you know, um, you knew that yeah, if you were 200 years ago, uh, you know, you knew that we were going to create some method of communicating that would allow us to communicate faster and connect and communicate with many people at the same time. You know, but no one then could have predicted that we would have an iPhone. You know, mm -hmm. we knew that we would have a mechanism, but we just didn't know that we would have an iPhone. Uh, you know, or we would have social media or whatever it is. But instinctively, you can think that by human nature, you know, we would have gotten to a point where we would want to communicate with as many people as possible. And, and you know, we would try to grow our social network. And I think that's kind of the same in, in exploration. We know that we need to get there, but we're not quite sure which path are we going to take to get there or how long it's going to kind of take. Well, you know, mercifully, uh, there's enough entrepreneurs in the world that... <laughs> the big thinkers don't get to decide what the one path is. Exactly. Uh, it's useful uh, if there's a thousand points of light, <laughs> none of which are muzzle flashes, uh, meaning, <laughs> meaning that exploration isn't driven by government, as an example, or maybe, maybe even driven by BHP or Rio Tinto. That's right. Uh, but rather that exploration, and maybe exploration is driven... It wouldn't hurt my feelings to see exploration partly driven by Bill Gates or Elon Musk. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I remember 10 years ago, maybe longer, uh, when Tesla was still in Santa Barbara being asked by Tesla to give uh, a discussion to them about rare earths and energy metals mm -hmm. and talking to the young people about Tesla, about the organization, financial organization of the exploration business. And I remember saying, one of them saying, boy, if ever there was a, dis a disruptable business, you know, he said, oh, I've yeah, never yeah. heard of anything so antique and arcane as what you're describing to me. And, uh, well, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, the current kind of financial structure that we have, you know, to particularly fund exploration and even to a large degree, I think, to fund mining as well. You know, this is probably the worst system we could have in place. Right. Like, yeah, the the way that the different agents kind of interact, you know, like mm -hmm. we would have to try hard to probably have a worse system than, than we currently have in a lot of ways. Uh, I, I'm not sure that's true. I'm sure that if exploration was funded by government, as an example. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that would be an even bigger disaster. Yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, seeing the Russians snatch defeat from the jaws of victory around the world. Uh, but, you know, actually 
seeing the lunacy of the U.S. government in the oil and gas business. Uh, it could be worse. It absolutely yep. could be worse. Uh, rather than allowing the private system to fail, uh, we could allow government to fail wholesale. Yeah, that's true. That could happen. Let's do it again. I, like, you know, we'd love to have you because we didn't talk about, you know, like the whole jurisdictional risk. I want you to have that rant at some point as well. Love to have that rant. I'll put it here. You have a standing invitation to come on and rant with us at any time you want. Great. Well, it'd be fun to do. This episode of Exploration Radio was brought to you by Ahmad Salim and Steve Beresford. Produced by Sean Jeffrey, edited by Ursula Anthony, and recorded remotely in February 2022. Exploration Radio is supported by the AIG, the Minerals Council of Australia, the Society of Economic Geologists, 121 Group, and the Assay. Until next time, let's keep exploring.